Okay, last week we covered uh, part of the genealogy of Jesus out of Matthew chapter 1. So we were covering the genealogy of Jesus. So just a reminder, we are looking at the life of the Messiah, the life of Jesus. We're using Luke, the Gospel of Luke, as our primary source because it is the only uh, chronological of the Gospels. But then we, we're filling it in with, with the other Gospels as we go along. Um, in Matthew, what we had covered last time is we looked at the genealogy of, of Jesus, but really what there is in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph, Jesus' presumed father, but really Jesus' father was God himself. And then what we learned is that if Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he never would have been qualified for the throne because we saw that uh, in that genealogy is Jeconiah. So we have David. Remember, he had to be of the house and the lineage of David. So one of David, David's sons was Solomon. From Solomon came Rehoboam on down through many generations. We got to Jeconiah. We read in Jeconiah how God had cursed that line saying, no one ever from the line of Jeconiah will sit on the throne of David. And so he cursed that line. And so that was through David, Solomon, all the way down to Jeconiah, cursed that line, and that was really the line of Joseph. If Jesus had been the son of Joseph, he never would have been qualified for the throne. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the genealogy. There's, a, there's two genealogies of Jesus mentioned in the Gospels. The second one is in, in, the, in the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 3. We see the genealogy of Jesus coming from the line of Mary. So that's Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Luke 3, 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matta, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Negaiah, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Judah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kassam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Metata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
Okay, so the difference between these is that, remember what we covered last time, is Matthew had skipped several people, which was not the typical Jewish way to give a genealogy. But the, the, the several people that he skipped, uh, three people in particular in going back, dating it back to Abraham, was he had skipped people who were descendants of Ahab and, and, uh, Ahab and, and Jezebel. So there was an intermarrying around the time of Jehoshaphat, and he skipped those people altogether. He also mentioned the names of, of four women, all of them Gentile women, all of them having some sort of sexual disorder in their lives. Uh, and so we talked about that, why that would be, how God has this abundant forgiveness, all of them being Gentile women, bringing in the, the fact of the Gentiles into that. Here, we have no skipping of any generations, no skipping of any names. He further, Matthew went back to Abraham and stopped, because remember, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people. Here, Luke is, remember, writing to people at large, to all the people. He's showing the humanity of Christ. He also brings in uh, uh, all of the names, which is the way it's typically done in Judaism. And many people have felt that, that Luke was the only gospel writer, actually the only writer of the New Testament, who was a Gentile. And there are other people that feel that, no, Luke was not a Gentile by many of the things that he did. So he took the common Jewish practice of never skipping a name. He never mentions a woman. So this was the common Jewish way, to never mention a woman in a genealogy. Not only that, he doesn't stop at Abraham. He walks it all the way back to Adam, the son of God. So he walks it to Adam, right back to Adam, because he is speaking to all of humanity in his, in his teaching as well. Now, this is obviously the line not of the line not of Joseph, but of, his, of Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, you say, well, Mary is never mentioned in this. Well, she is not mentioned directly. So let me explain to you. Because in Judaism they would never mention the name of a woman in a lineage, how do you, does one follow the lineage of a woman? Well, one would follow, the typical Jewish way was to follow the lineage of the woman through her husband. Well, then that raises another problem. If it's through her husband that you're following it, say you read the lineage of the husband, and now you have the lineage of the wife through the husband, how do you know which is which? Now, for us, it is confusing, because remember, we have our Gentile mindset. But for them, it was not confusing, because there was a prescribed order. In fact, there are two places in the Bible where it talks about going through the woman, where, it was, it, where what would happen is, the line was traced by mentioning not the woman's name, but the woman's husband's name. But some clue was often given. So, for example, in, in, in Ezra 2.61 and Nehemiah 7.63, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, in Ezra yeah, 2.61 and Nehemiah 7.63, there are two instances where a woman's line is tracked and there is a mention of the woman, but then it went right through the name of her husband. In the same way, there will always be a clue given when they are switching from the woman's name to the man's name because they'll mention the man but mean the woman. So they'll mention the husband but mean the wife. You say, well, how can that be? Remember, from our Gentile mindset, it doesn't make sense. But from their mindset, it made sense. Now, the problem comes because we have a problem with, with English. There was no such problem in Hebrew or in Greek 
which is, this is written in. So when, when I say the name of somebody, I, I don't say the Alex or the Lindsay. I don't put the definite article in front of a name. All right? The, the time I use a definite article is if I'm saying, uh, uh, if I'm speaking of a family. So, for example, the Tours, right? The Smiths. Then I would put the definite article in front. But if I'm just speaking of an individual, I don't put the definite article in front. It turns out in Greek, one does. So one says, the Mary, the Barbara. One puts the definite article in front. That is okay and that is prescribed and just fine. It turns out every name that is mentioned in this entire lineage has the definite article in front of it. The and then the name. Except one. And that is the name of Joseph. And that is the clue that he's going not through Joseph, but he's mentioning Joseph as the husband, but going through Mary's line. So this is the prescribed way to do this in Judaism, and it works very well in Greek in which this was written, to do it this way. So everybody has the definite article before their name in this. It's been deleted because it's being written now in English. Except one name, and that is Joseph's name. And Joseph's name, so that tells us that this is Joseph, but mentions his name, as it did in Ezra and in Nehemiah, going, this is the wife's line, but mentions the husband's name, and you can tell by the lack of the definite article in front of Joseph's name. And not only this, when you see Joseph, it says, Joseph, the son of Eli, uh, very often that's translated heli, and the reason for that is, if you meet a Jew today from the Middle East, from Israel, they will not, you will not call them Eli. Even if their name is E-L-I, you call them Eli. It's pronounced differently. So when this is translated into English, very often, you, sometimes it will be trans, translated H-E-L-I, Heli, and you say, this is Eli, not Heli. How come they mixed up the names? It has to do with how you convert the name to English. And, and uh, so I just didn't want you to be confused on that. But now that we've established that this is the line now of Mary... Remember, Joseph, we had her, his lineage in Matthew. Joseph was of the line of Jeconiah, which disqualified him. Even though he was of the Davidic line, it disqualified him from kingship because of what was prophesied back in Jeremiah that we looked at last time, that God would never allow any descendant of Jeconiah to sit upon the throne of David. The judgment came, cutting off that line. But now if you look back up in in that same portion, Luke chapter 3, look in verse 31. The son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matai, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So, what Luke does is he starts from the pre- his present day, Mary, and works his way back to Adam, back to God. Whereas, remember, Matthew had flipped it. Matthew was starting with Abraham and working his way on down to Joseph. So either way, you can record a lineage. You can record it one way or the other way. But it, the son of David that it mentions here is not Solomon. The son of David that is mentioned is Nathan. So if you turn to First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter three, you see where Nathan is. Nathan is the brother of Solomon. So First uh, uh, Chronicles chapter three. In, in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, it's, it's outlining the, the 
the sons of David. And then it says in verse 4, 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 4, six were born to him in Hebron, and there he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. So remember, that was David's reign. Seven years in Hebron, then 33 years in Jerusalem. Four years total he reigned. Verse 5, there were born to him in Jerusalem, Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. So remember, he was married to Bathsheba. In this context, it's being translated Bathsheba. And you say, well, why, why is it recorded differently? Because sometimes you will see my name written, James Tour. Sometimes it will be Jim Tour. Sometimes when I was younger, it was written Jimmy Tour. In fact, on my Social Security card, it's written Jimmy Tour. Because I remember, I was just a kid, and I went with my mother, and that's what she always called me, so that's what I wrote. And that's what's on my Social Security card. Although on my birth certificate, it's changed. You say, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem there. Somebody has cheated. Uh, uh, This is all corrupt Bible. This is all corrupt text. This is all corrupt in Jim Tour's life. No, it's not corrupt. It's just different names that I could be called. So the difference between Jimmy and James and Jim is quite profound, but we understand the difference. Here, her name is listed as Bathsheba. We know that she was the the mother of Solomon. Solomon's brother here in this context is Nathan. So what God does is when he curses the line of Jehoiakim, he's not stuck. He just goes back up and takes another son of David, Nathan, and brings the Messiah through that line, still of the sons of David. You see, God's got this all figured out. It's really no problem for him. He's got it all figured out. And so that's the lineage of, of uh, Jesus through, through uh, uh, the, the, uh, the genealogy that's recorded in Luke. Okay, so now let's skip on back to Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 57. And now we're going to talk about the birth of John. So we've covered the the lineage of Jesus, and now we're going to look at the actual birth of John, and then we'll look at the birth of Jesus. So the birth of John. We had already covered uh, uh, how the angel had spoken to Elizabeth. I'm sorry, how the angel had, had spoken to Zechariah. How Elizabeth, in her old age, beyond her childbearing years, had now become pregnant with John, her first child. So you see in in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time had come for uh, for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Okay, so Elizabeth now is having her baby. Remember that when Mary came in and visited with Elizabeth, that the baby John leapt in her womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, as Gabriel the angel said would happen, while yet in her womb. And and uh, uh, Mary then proclaims how how uh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth proclaims that Mary is the mother of the Lord. The two were together for a period of about three months before the birth of John. Mary leaves, goes back to her home. Elizabeth lives in the hills of Judea. It says. And now her son is born. And remember, this is after her normal childbearing years. This is a miraculous conception and a miraculous birth. And so now John 
the Baptist is born, miraculous conception, not in the sense that he didn't have a physical father, he had Zechariah as a father, but miraculous in the sense that it was after her normal childbearing years, she all of a sudden became pregnant. In verse 58, it says, Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. So you see that there was a community of neighbors and relatives. This is something that we have to remember, that there's a community in the body of Christ. Uh, As a family, as a family, we have lived all over the country. So, So Shireen and I met in the church when I was doing my undergraduate work in Syracuse. I went off, did a year of graduate work, came back, we got married, brought Shireen out with me. We lived in Indiana at Purdue University. Then we moved to, then that's where Ambreen was born. We went to the University of Wisconsin. Sabrina was born there. We went to Stanford. Uh, um, no kids were born there. We just had the two. We were there for a while. And then we moved to South Carolina. The two boys were born. We moved to Texas. Every place we've ever moved, we have liked. So people say, well, where do you like most? I don't know where we like most. We like everywhere we've ever lived. Because for us, there was an instant community no matter where we went. Because we got involved rather rapidly in the body of Christ. And as soon as you start getting involved, that, that's much more than just merely attending. Becoming involved is different than attending. It's as if, as if uh, um, you, know, you just happen to live in a house, but you never related to anybody in that house. It's different to be part of a family. So when you get into a church and you become related to the people in that church, through the things that you do together, through praying together, through through taking the Lord's Supper together, through fellowshipping together, through cleaning together, and doing all the things that you do as a member of the body of Christ, you instantly have a family. So we were very rapidly, wherever we went, we would usually find a church within the first couple of months. We would find a church. We would visit a few, and it didn't take us long to narrow this thing down. In fact, usually what I was doing is I was searching things out. There was no internet early on, and so you couldn't search things out on the internet very well, because there, no, there was no such thing. But I would get newspapers from the town, and I would begin to learn about it. I would ask people, have you ever lived, do you know anybody who's ever lived here? And then I, we'd get uh, suggestions with churches, but we would immediately have a community. And so what would happen is that we would have a community, and when we went through typical struggles in, in, in life, when You know, whatever struggles there were, when Shireen lost a child and things like that. I mean, we had a community around us. There was a community in the body of Christ. And this is the thing that very often young people don't understand. How important it is to have the community of the body of Christ. You have that in campus groups, and that's a great thing. But what happens is, once you leave campus, you don't have that support mechanism from Agape or or these other groups. You don't have that. So understanding what it is to fellowship in the body of Christ. And it becomes very important for your children. One of the main reasons why we started going to this particular church is my children loved it. When we moved here, my oldest daughter was 15. The next one was 12. And then the two boys were younger. But it was a difficult move, particularly for the older two. You know, at 15 years old and 12 years old, that's a hard move. And when we came here there was a tall, skinny kid who was in charge of the, the student ministry, and his name was Roger Patterson. And they loved Roger. I mean, Roger was a terrific youth pastor. And, uh, uh, you know, he'd have the guitar around his neck, and he'd, 
you know, do the things that youth pastors do. My daughters used to say, you know, they used to ride in vans to go out to eat and things. And my daughter was telling me how Roger could open the passenger window as he's driving the car. He could open the passenger window and he could spit out the passenger window right in front of the passenger's face. And they thought that was so amazing. I said, well, you know, that's a youth pastor. Dad can't do that very well. But youth pastors are special people. And they got knit in immediately. I remember I brought them. And and then I remember bringing Josiah. He was just uh, about eight years old to his first class. And his first class, uh, uh, the pastor's wife brought us up there. And I dropped Josiah off. And he's always been very shy. And as soon as the door opened, uh, um, we introduced him, and the person teaching the class was Miss Barbara, who runs the children's ministry now. And she said, Josiah, give me five, and just brought him right in, and all of a sudden he felt at home. I thought, this is where I want to be. I need the community for my family, and we wanted to be part of the community. And we instantly had a community. This woman, Elizabeth, had people around her. It is important for you to learn how to relate to the body of Christ, to learn what a church is, to learn the dynamics of churches. I love to come in early because in the, the class that meets before this class in, in this same room is the, the seniors. The, I, I think they call them the prime timers or something. And, and I'll, I'll always come in here before church starts, so, so at, at, at around... Uh, 8.30 or 9 o'clock, just to come in and greet the older people as they're all coming into the class because I want to experience that community. I was just talking with the lady who plays the piano for them for the class. I mean, she just celebrated her 92nd birthday. And she plays the piano for the class. And I said, you know, how, how long have you been playing the piano? She said, since I was nine years old, I have been playing for the church. So whatever class she was in, she started out playing for the children's class and then for the you know, the young Mary's class. And she's 92 now and she's still playing. And I say, do you ever have trouble with your, your hand? She says, my arthritis is okay as long as I play. I said, well, keep playing. I mean, 92 years old and she's still playing the piano. She comes up here with her walker and she plays. I want to meet her because that's important to me in the community of the body of Christ. This should be important to you too. The community that you have in the body of Christ that you begin to relate to these people, that you learn what it is. And then from that class, they're always having extracurricular gatherings in the primetime class. And you know what many of their gatherings are? Funerals. Because so many from that class, every couple of months, somebody else is being promoted to go with the Lord. That's what happens. Just as we have many people come to our class every year, as we get new students coming in, they come into the class... And other ones graduate, so we lose our students by graduation. They, they lose their attendees by being promoted to go with the Lord. But that is life. That is what life is all about. And at some point you'll be in the young marriage class and, and people are having babies and new people are coming in through births. And, I, and I'll tell you, kids are contagious. If you're young and married and you're not having children, you're around people that are having children, it's contagious. And, and all of a sudden, you know, everybody starts having children together. I mean, this is, this is uh, uh, what happens in young married classes. Understanding that community is an important part. Because what happens in life is there are struggles that arise. And remember, when struggles arise, it is the church, it is the community, the body of Christ that will come around you, that will cook the meals for you. I remember when, when uh, uh, so, so after our two daughters, uh, we lost one of our children, uh, 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 
Shireen had a miscarriage, and I remember she was in the bedroom sleeping, and the women in church were bringing meals over for us. I, st- I didn't have to cook at all. I mean, they were glad to bring you over meals. Why? Because we had been part of this community. We did the same for other people when they were sick. And I remember when, when we were living in South Carolina, and uh, this, this woman had, had brought over this, uh, you know, some, some stew or something, some gelatinous material that, that uh, uh, we were eating, and, and, and a pound cake. And I remember I, I served it to the girls, and then I served the pound cake to them afterwards. And then the lady came over later that evening. Shireen was still sleeping to pick up the dishes. And I thanked her for the stew and for the pound cake. And remember, this was South Carolina. She says, what pound cake? I said, the, the, the thing in the dish there, the pound cake. She said, you dumb Yankee, that was cornbread. <laughs> and I was in my 20s. I had never had cornbread before. I was from New York. That's not something we normally ate. I thought it was pound cake. It was actually a pretty good dessert. I mean, the girls were just little girls. They didn't know. We, we had it for pound cake. But you see what happens in the body of Christ. The fellowship that occurs, the family that occurs through the body of Christ. This is something that the world doesn't instantly have. We could move into any city, and within a few months, we had a community. When you participate in the body of Christ, you can instantly have a community. And this is, this is nothing to take lightly. It is extremely valuable, the community of the body of Christ. But you don't instantly get that community unless you make yourself a part of that community. When you make yourself a part of that community, there are showers, there are things that, that, that are going on, and, 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 and births, and deaths, and funerals, and the pastors are there to, you know, to, to bury your loved ones when they need to be buried. You need people around you at that time. You need people who can come in who know how to handle this. The body of Christ is there. This is what Elizabeth had. This is what they're talking about. The neighbors, her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. All right, verse 59. And it happened on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what they wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were astonished, and all at once his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all the matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So remember, Zechariah, for not believing Gabriel, Gabriel said, Okay, you will not speak. He was unable to speak as a judgment from, the, from Gabriel, the angel, when Zechariah didn't believe what was going to happen. He, it was a judgment upon him that he was not going to be able to speak until the child was, was, was born. And what we learn from this, he may have not been able to hear either, because it says, it says that uh, um, in verse 62, they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. They made signs. If all he was was, was, was unable to speak, but if he could hear, you, don't, you could just speak to him. But no, they made signs to him. So the mother says, call him John or, or Yohanan, which is really what his name was. This is the... the when, it, when it's made in English, they call this John. Yohanan was a common name at that time. 
still is a common name in Israel. So Yohanan was what he was to be called. And that's very strange because they're saying is none of your relatives are named that. In Judaism today, it is bad luck. It is not common to name one of your children the same name as a living relative. You name them, you find to name them after a relative who's already deceased. But you don't name them after a living relative. I remember the alarm of, of my father when uh, uh, he called me uh, uh, before my, my first child was born. And we didn't know if Amreen was going to be a boy or a girl. And he called me and he was very concerned. He says, I know how much you like your grandfather. Please don't name your child after your grandfather because your grandfather's still alive. And so, in modern Judaism, you don't name your child after a living relative. You name them after a deceased relative. In classical Judaism, that was not the case. You name them after a living relative. And so, in other words, his name normally would have been the same name as his father. Zechariah ben Zechariah. Or his name would be Zechariah, son of Zechariah. So, that would have been the normal way to have named him, the firstborn son, to be named after his father. And the mother, who now knows what his name is supposed to be, because Zechariah had obviously communicated that to her, what the angel had said to him, wrote it out for her because he was unable to speak. She says, no, his name is going to be John or Johanna. And then they ask the father, and the father writes it out. His name is John. He wrote that out. His name is John. And it says that they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. In verse 65 it says, This brought fear on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. So in their whole neighborhood, this brought fear. So it's not like, oh, how cute. <laughs> no, this brought fear. I mean, they really saw that something supernatural was occurring. This guy was in the temple doing his priestly service when all of a sudden he comes out mute and then, and then he, uh, uh, all of a sudden his tongue is loosed and these strange things are occurring that this woman after her childbearing years becomes pregnant and gives birth to a child and they know something amazing is going to happen with this child. There's a lot, there are a lot of supernatural things occurring with this. And they kept wondering what this child was going to turn out to be. In verse 67, now you see the thing that Zechariah starts saying, his prophecy. He starts prophesying. So remember, a prophet is one who's communicating the things of the Lord. Uh, in, 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 who has direct revelation from God. That is a prophet, one who has direct revelation from God. And so in verse 67, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visits us, and accomplishes redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we may be rescued from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. So this first part, he starts speaking about not his own son. He is prophesying about Jesus who is coming. The latter part of this, he's going to speak about his own son. So the first part, he speaks about his own son. He mentions the covenant. He mentions actually three covenants in this. 
The first covenant he mentions, he mentions the covenant of David. He mentions the covenant of David because he says in verse 69, in the house of David is servant. So immediately he's mentioning that this Jesus who's coming is of the lineage of the house of David. So there was a promise made to David that the Messiah will come from your offspring. He says there was also the promise made to Abraham. So in verse 73, there was this promise made to Abraham, which he swore to our fathers. And then he goes on and he speaks about, uh, um, he, 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 later on he's going to mention the new covenant. But before I get there, since we're talking about Abraham, remember they had come together in verse 59 of that. It says, and it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Alright, so circumcision, the name is always given on the day of circumcision. still happens today in Jewish homes. The name is officially given. You, you can think about what you're going to call him, but the official name is not given to a male child until the day of circumcision. You say, well, you mean they wait eight days to give the official name? Yes, they wait eight days to give the official name. How fast do you think Gentiles give names? You think that the same nanosecond the child is born, they give the child a name? No, you have several days to choose the name of the child. And in most states... What you do is you fill out the form before you leave the hospital because of the convenience. This is the name of the child. But you have a period of about 30 days that you can change the name of that child without doing any massive paperwork. You just fill out one form. The name of the child is changed. In fact, we did that. Our, our, when, when Ben was born, his name is Beniah. We decided to use one spelling when we were in the hospital. But after he came out of the hospital, I decided to go right back to the biblical spelling of it. And so then from then on, I just started filling out his name in another way, Benaiah. So you can do that even within states now. You can change the name of a child up to, I think it's about 30 days, but it'll vary by state. But here, it's on the eighth day, the child is circumcised. Now, circumcision is a testimony of the parents, something about the child. We are dedicating our child. And, and circumcision in, this, in the time that this was occurring had two meanings. There was a Remember, there were two covenants of circumcision that were given. The first covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham. And, and they were identified with Abraham as offsprings of Abraham through circumcision. The second covenant of circumcision was given to Moses. And that was in recognition to the law. That part of circumcision has been done away with because we are no longer under the law. But the recognition of circumcision as offspring of Abraham for the Jew is still still in force, and has never done away with. God even said that will be a perpetual, a perpetual thing of circumcision, a perpetual commandment of circumcision upon the Jew. So when a Jew, even a Messianic Jew today, one who believes in Messiah, is having their son circumcised, it is in recognition to Abraham, the covenant to Abraham, that they are descendant from Abraham. But not as under the law. This is why when Paul had Timothy circumcised, he said to Timothy, you need to be circumcised because your mother was a Jew. Your father was a Greek. Your mother was a Jew. You better get circumcised. And so he had Timothy circumcised. He did not have Titus circumcised because Titus was a Gentile. He had Timothy circumcised in recognition of his mother's Jewishness. Now, today, Jews will say Judaism comes through the mother. Jews today know very little about the origin of that. The origin of Judaism coming through the mother came in about 1000 AD because Jewish women were being raped and they didn't know who the fathers were. So rabbinic Judaism said, let's say it's through the mother because we know who the mother is. Judaism will come through the mother. But scripturally, Old Testament, it was always through the father. And this is why Joseph's children, Ephraim and Manasseh, 
Their mother was, was, was an Egyptian, the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, I'm sorry, the daughter of one of the priests uh, uh, in Egypt. They were Jews because their father was a Jew. Solomon's mother was a Gentile, Bathsheba, but he was a Jew because his father was a Jew. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, David was a Jew because of his father. His mother, remember, his great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabitess. She was not a Jew by descendancy. It came through his father. It wasn't until the New Testament and Paul's dealing with Timothy that he said Jewishness can come through the mother. Your mother's a Jew, he said, he said to Timothy, you get circumcised. Your father was a Greek. So in fact, the New Testament was the first place that Judaism could, was noted to be able to come through the mother as well as the father. Most Jews are totally oblivious to that. Uh, but anyway, so, so circumcision is a testimony that comes of the parents. I'll tell you, it's not a testimony of the child. If the child had his choice, I am sure he would not want to be circumcised. That's not a pleasant thing for him. But it's not his choice. It's in recognition of the parents. It is, when people say there's a relation between circumcision and baptism, baptism is a choice of the individual. It's not a testimony of the parents. It's a testimony of the individual. That's why you get baptized when you have sense to get baptized. I choose to be baptized. It's not my parents' choice. This is something that I choose. Circumcision was done. I was circumcised on the eighth day as a Jew because of my parents. Not because of me. I made a choice, though, to be baptized. When I was, when I was uh, 19 years old, I got baptized. I made that choice. If you have not been baptized, if you have never made the choice to be baptized, you ought to be. Baptism is one of the things the Bible talks about that we should be. We should be baptized. You say, well, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. Well, be embarrassed then. Get baptized. Get baptized. You need to make the choice to be baptized. If you were baptized, if you never knew that you were being